Good to see you all. My name is Dave Werns. I get to serve as the missions director here at Grace Fellowship Church, and I, I also have the privilege and honor of opening up God's Word with you all this morning. I normally attend the Fort Thomas campus, but it's such a blessing to get to see people from a variety of places throughout northern Kentucky. Uh, like Pastor Brian said, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1 today, so if you would find your way there, Jonah chapter 1. Follow along with me as we start in verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great storm on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was with them in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down was fast asleep. And the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, and we may not perish. Would you join me asking God to use his word to effect change in our life today for his glory? Father, we are We're so thankful that you've given us the entire word of God, the completed word that is good for our training in righteousness. Would you give power as we listen, as we hear? Would you move your Holy Spirit on your people to be transformed more and more into your Son, even today, even this morning? We ask this for his reputation and for our good. Amen. Now, one of the reasons that I love the book of Jonah, and this really is, I know people say that all the time, it, it really is one of my favorite books. One of the reasons I love it so much is because God has packed into this little book, right? It's four chapters. You can get through it in about 10 minutes if you're reading at average speed. So many layers are in here, though. So I would highly recommend Uh, You read this book more than once, probably more than a few times, because there are so many, so many facets about our God that are seen clearly through this text. And all throughout the book of Jonah, I, I think we are confronted with our inability as humans to fully wrap our minds around this God that we worship. And so it takes time and exposure to really absorb what all is in there. Particularly when we're confronted with paradoxical truths. Truths that seem to be in conflict, but they're not. Right? We, we have this tension in our lives that we'd prefer to get rid of, but, but it's necessary. When we see who God is, that we hold on to all of the truth. 
right? Even, even when they seem to be creating some tension in our life, when we hold on to, to God's love and his wrath, right? We hold on to God's compassion and his judgment. We hold on to God's mercy and his justice at the same time, and it, and it creates a tension in our life. It's healthy. It grows us, strengthens us. I think one of the most common sources of that tension, right, is when we hold on equally to God's sovereign rule over all things and our responsibility to make choices in the world. We talk about God's sovereignty here a lot, but, but I think this passage in particular, it can help us adjust our grip on both his sovereign rule and our responsibilities so that we can live in that tension more faithfully, more practically. To be clear, the Bible does teach that God is the absolute, active, sovereign ruler over all things, right? He is the absolute authority, always. And the Bible also teaches that we have responsibilities with our choices, and those choices actually matter. The outcomes of those decisions we have responsibility for, and there's real impact there. And the fact that our minds struggle to hold on to both of those truths equally at all times, that's not evidence of contradiction in the Bible. That's evidence that we are small and we are finite. Right? That God is wiser than us, that he's smarter than us, he's more creative than us. Right? Our struggle is not evidence that, that this Bible's not trustworthy. It's evidence right, that he is God. And we are not. Honestly, I'm not really trying to convince anybody that God is sovereign or that we have responsibilities. Okay, that's a sermon for another day. All I'm telling you is that that's what the Bible teaches. And so that's what we're going to go on. And our passage today can help us live faithfully, deliberately inside of that tension, rather than swinging wildly right between extremes this pendulum that we're so prone to riding. And so practically speaking, that means we're going to embrace the fact that there are some things in this world we get to choose, and there are many things we cannot. On the surface, that might seem fairly obvious to you. right? I can choose my clothes, but I, I can't choose the weather. I can choose to put my my 10-month-old baby daughter into her crib, but I can't make her sleep. As the old saying goes, right, you can can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. Don't don't try. Okay, that's not a challenge. Don't. I better reel reel it back in. Okay. Again, God, God has given us some responsibilities to choose. That sounds fairly intuitive, but I can see four areas in our passage today where I struggle, and I'm pretty sure most of us are still struggling to embrace that reality. Number one, challenge number one, we can choose our sin, but we cannot choose our storms. We can choose our sin, but we cannot choose our storms. Look at Jonah chapter one, verse one again. Now the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, 
Skip down to verse 3. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah could have obeyed, right? He'd obeyed in the past. He'd been a faithful prophet to God's people, but he chose to rebel. Now, if Jonah Jonah had chosen the obedient route, this would be a much shorter book, a much shorter sermon. But, folks, Jonah's not alone here. I think if we're honest with each other, and we're all friends, right? We can be honest. If we're honest with each other, we all choose, even now, to rebel against God. To some degree, on some level, we are all still choosing to disobey. Maybe not right this second, right? Maybe not right now as you're, as you're sitting in church. Maybe not as a defining characteristic of your life, I hope. But every single one of us is still choosing to disobey God. And it is a choice. Okay, it's not just something that happens to us out of the blue. It's not like sitting in gum or something. Okay, it's, it's a decision we're making. Regardless of how that manifests itself, whether, it, whether it's lust or lying, greed or gluttony, selfishness, gossip, pride, I don't care if you're bitter, lazy, or ungrateful. Right? Each time we choose to sin, we are saying, I trust my interpretation of reality more than God's. I'm functionally putting my faith in something other than Jesus. And it's so important that we own our sin. Because if sin is just something that happens to me, or it just comes to, to us out of nowhere, then we've effectively drained the gospel of Jesus of its real power. Right? The life and death and resurrection of Jesus isn't just here to make nice people nicer. Okay? It's here to make dead people alive. Right? The sacrificial death of Jesus, it makes evil people righteous. In fact, the real hope of the gospel isn't just that God is willing with his grace and infinite mercy to cover over any and all sin in your life. That's true and it's glorious. But the real real power of the gospel is that his grace transforms us and empowers us to choose not sin anymore. We become completely different people. That is real power. Hallelujah. Amen. But if you're anything like me, there's still a piece of you. Maybe a small piece, but it's there. And it says, yeah, that's cool. But I like my sin. Lying feels good. Self-indulgence feels good. Gossip, worry. Self-pity. These things are just kind of part of me now. It's like an old pair of slippers, right? They just get broke in over time. Or your favorite pair of jeans, it just fits right. Folks, I'm talking from experience. 
What about you? What about your sin? What sin have you grown accustomed to? Comfortable with? I'm not talking about the sin that you, you struggle against. Right? That you battle against every day and, and more often than not you fail. It's not the experience I'm talking about. What I'm, what I'm talking about is the sin that you've stopped struggling against. You don't, you don't need to pretend like you're perfect. Okay, you don't need to play it cool. We, we all know there are no perfect people. And we know that you're choosing your sin because we chose ours too. You're not fooling anyone, least of all God. I think that's one of the reasons we have the example of Jonah. It's just a level with people. God's people still sin. The good news is that through the power of Jesus, we can choose to fight again. Through the power of a risen Savior, we can choose to fight against the sins that we enjoy. In fact, as your brother in Christ, I'm, I'm calling you to renew your fight against sin. I'm asking you, will you commit to taking up arms against the sin you enjoy? Fight the sin God shows you. There's plenty you don't see. We'll get to that later. Fight the sin you see. God's with you. He will help you. And I don't know what it looks like in your life. I don't know what sin we're addressing. And I, I frankly, I don't, I don't have to, right? It's okay if you don't know how to start. It's okay to, if you don't know where to begin. Shoot me an email. We, we can talk it over. I'll, I'll, we'll figure it out together. But I'm begging you, don't wait. Sin is not something you can just deal with later when it's convenient. It, this isn't a check engine light. Sin is a matter of urgency, always. Because your sin will always bring a storm. Sin is never benign. It is always terminal. Your sin that you choose will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you so much more than you have ever wanted to pay. Ironically, first time I ever heard that quote, it's from Dr. Ravi Zacharias, which as some of you know, his ministry, his, his testimony, his legacy has been damaged by his own sinful choices, even after his death. The story of Ravi, the story of Jonah, the, the story of so many men and women uh, that we are aware of, it, it proves the point that we are able to choose our sin. But we cannot pick our storms. We don't choose when it happens. We don't choose what it damages. And we do not choose who else gets caught in the path. Again, if you're anything like me, right, perhaps 
You're hearing that sin brings a storm, but it hasn't hit yet. And so you find some small comfort in knowing lightning hasn't struck yet. I'm with you. Right? I, I look to the fact that I'm winning in, in the fight against temptation in other areas of my life or, or God's blessing my family or my ministry. Friends, Jonah's journey to Joppa was very uneventful. There was even a ship waiting for him take him where he wanted to go. God had blessed him with the finances to fund a round-the-world trip headed to Tarshish. An open door. Hallelujah. And then verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Your sin will always Bring a storm. Galatians 6, 7. Paul tells us that do not be deceived. Our God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, so also will he reap. In the case of Jonah, maybe it cost a little bit of cargo, some, some gray hairs for the sailors. But throughout history, unrepented sin has cost so much more. It's cost marriages. It's cost families. It's cost legacies, physical life, more importantly, eternal life. You see, the worst possible outcome for unrepented sin is not that God will hurl a storm upon the circumstances of your life. The worst possible outcome of unrepented sin is that God chooses not to send a storm. Keep a finger in Jonah. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews gives us a little picture behind the heart of God as he sends storms. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll start in verse 5. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation? That addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who his father didn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Friends, this is, this is not a warning that you should shape up or ship out. Right? I'm, not, I'm not calling you to clean yourselves up and get your act together, start living right. Or we can't. That's the whole point. Right? That's, that's exactly why Jesus came to earth and died in our place to begin with, to do what we could never do for ourselves. He is the one who has power to free us from sin. He is the one who has the ability to give us a, a new life beyond sin. But friends, we have to talk to him about our sin. 
ask him for forgiveness. Right? Ask him both to give you the desire to fight sin and then the power to fight sin. Friends, he loves you. That's the kind of prayer he will always answer. I'll say that again. He, he loves you. Of course he's going to forgive you. Of course he's going to give you the power and the desire to live for him. 1 John chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5 says, this is the message that we have heard from him. And proclaim it to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we fellowship with him while we walk in the dark, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sin. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, this is really, really good news for those of us who still sin. Today is the day of salvation, friends. Confess. Turn away. Commit to fighting your sin. Ask for his forgiveness. Let's walk in the light and fellowship together. Amen and amen. Now, unfortunately, the fact that we will repent from our sins and choose to fight against temptation does not mean that we get to avoid every storm in our lives. In fact, some of the worst storms of my life have come as a result of other people's sin. I imagine it's the same for some of you. It certainly was... For the sailors on Jonah's ship. Right, leave a finger in Hebrews. Go back to Jonah. Back at verse 4. Right, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo into the sea. That was on the ship to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Friends, point number two, that tension we live in. Right? We don't get to pick our storms. That's God's domain. But we do get to choose our response to those storms. Now, the sailor's reaction, right, that's very human, totally predictable. I think we've all felt that to some degree. Or your emotions spike. Survival instinct starts to kick into high gear. And we do whatever we have to do to get out alive. I hope that's familiar to some of you. I know it certainly is 
for me. I can think of when water heater goes out again and floods the basement. Or when a coworker we thought was a friend slanders us. Or an employee we trusted is stealing. Or a spouse is unfaithful. Or the cancer's back. And it's spreading. Right? The storms have nothing to do with us. They hit us anyway. I think it's appropriate that we point people during times like that to glorious passages like Romans 8. Right? Then all things God works together for the good of those who love him. Or maybe John 16. Like Brad mentioned that, that in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. These are our glorious truths that have sustained believers for centuries. We found hope and comfort that God's good plan is still in effect in the middle of our storm. Or we could point people right to other passages like Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I'm with you. Or Matthew 6. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has worries of its own. Or even Philippians 4. Right? Be anxious for nothing. But in all things, present the prayer and petition, present your request to God. And these are, again, true, stable, helpful passages that remind us that fear and worry and anxiety have no place in a Christian's life. But as I was praying through this passage, I couldn't help but notice the similarities between those pagan sailors and my own reaction to storms. Even though I'm familiar with these truths, and I really do believe them, I tend to approach the storms in my life with equal parts prayer and problem solving. If I'm honest, most of my prayers tend to lean very heavily towards the problem solving. Right, I might not say it out loud, but, but I tend to think immediately, God, just show me what I'm supposed to learn so we can get out of this quickly and move on. Right, out loud, I, I might end up praying some variation of God. I know that you're sovereign and good, so would you please provide, guide, soften, strengthen, open, close, him, her, them, us, so we can all get back to our regularly scheduled program. Amen. And then I wait for the storm to pass. I don't think that's necessarily sinful. And I'm definitely not suggesting that we should, uh, we should neglect the God-given resources, right, of insurance or medical professionals or wise business practices. But I am saying if our default response to the storms that God has sovereignly chose to hurl into our lives... If our default response to those storms is to immediately ask him, hurry up, get me out of here. Maybe we've misunderstood the purpose behind the storm. Flip again to Hebrews 12. Flip again back to Hebrews 12. Let's start in verse 7 this time. He says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And what son, for what son is there whose father did not discipline him? 
If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more submit to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That term training at the end of verse 11, that word training paints a very different mental picture than the academic learn your lessons classroom scenario that we might be more familiar with in the West. Right? It's different even from an apprenticeship under, under a master tradesman. That, that word training that the author is referring to, it's, it's less like studying for a test, and it's more like preparing for the Olympics. Right, it's the word that, that Greeks would use for an athlete who's working out to get their body into peak physical condition before a competition. Some of you might know that experience better than me. I'm not particularly athletic. But even I know that kind of conditioning, it doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen randomly. It's not haphazard. Each athlete submits themselves to a training regimen specific to their goals. Wrestlers don't train like marathoners. Right? Runners run. Jumpers jump. Swimmers swim. Curlers squeegee. I don't... But they don't do it because they don't know how to run or they don't know how to swim. Right? They condition themselves so that they can perform at their best, highest possible level when it really matters. And so the question we need to ask ourselves when God hurls the strong winds into our lives is not how quickly can this be over? It's not even, what lesson am I supposed to learn from this, God? The question we need to be asking ourselves as we endure those storms is, what exactly does God train his children for? What is the Olympic-sized event that God is conditioning his people for? Folks, it is, it is vitally important to our long-term spiritual survival, that we connect the dots between God's strong winds and our eternal destiny. They are linked because there are facets of his character and there are depths to his promises that we will not understand without this specific training. Friends, the Olympic-sized event that God is conditioning his people for is an eternity of worship in his glorious presence. We are not ready yet. But God knows what he created us for. He knows that our greatest pleasure, our, our most enduring joy, is going to come from being our absolute best worshipers for eternity. Specifically, Jesus. 
And he also knows the best training to make us worshipers like Jesus. I think in places where where biblical teaching is regularly rolled out, places like Grace Fellowship, there is a chance that we can start to hear phrases like sanctification or or growing in Christ-likeness almost as platitudes. It's possible that the life-changing phrases, the life-changing truths, like the trials God brings are for His glory and our good, might slowly degrade into cliches. Friends, if we are going to take up arms against the sins that we enjoy, if we're going to continually submit ourselves to the training regimen of our good Heavenly Father, then we have to be able to connect the dots between our daily choices and our eternal destiny. I'll say it as plainly as I know how. We are all becoming the people we will be for eternity. The more like Jesus we become, the better that eternity will be. And by choosing to worship God in the middle of our storms, we can directly impact the kind of person and the kind of life that we will experience for millions upon millions upon millions of years to come. That's why James, in his book, can say, Consider it pure joy, brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because we don't get to pick the storms. But we can choose to be trained by them. And if you've put your faith in Christ, we can be confident these storms are not punishment. That these storms are not arbitrary hardships that will build character so you'll be a better person today. These storms are specifically chosen by a good, loving, wise Father to condition you for your best possible eternity. And each storm, whether it's from your sin or somebody else's sin or Adam's sin in the garden that broke the world, we can be confident and be trained by it. Remember, Hebrews 12, verse 11 says that no discipline is pleasant at the time. So we would never choose it for ourselves. Right? But it says that later, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to any who's been trained by it. Folks, let's be trained by the storms God chooses. I hope you're starting to see how those parallel truths, right, the tension between our God's sovereign rule and our responsibilities to choose, they can have massive practical implications for how we make decisions day to day. And I think we could stop here right now and be busy for the rest of our lives. (laughs) But in an abundance of wisdom... In generosity and creativity, God has sovereignly chosen to add another layer of complexity to that sovereignty responsibility conversation. He gave each of us neighbors 
Look back at Jonah. Last time, look back at Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 6. The captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. All Jonah's trying to do is find the shortest route away from God and away from those nasty Gentiles that God intends to save. And where does he end up? Surrounded by nasty Gentiles that are begging him to cry out to his God on their behalf. Guy can't catch a break. Folks, we don't get to choose our neighbors any more than we get to choose our storms. Sometimes they're one and the same. God chose who to put in front of you. It's deliberate. It's not accidental. It's not haphazard. It's not random. He chose your neighbors. Jonah might have picked his destination, but he didn't choose what ships would be in the harbor. Jonah might have had multiple boats to choose from. Doesn't say. He definitely didn't choose who was going to be on that ship. Now, you might have picked your job. You might have chosen your neighborhood. Maybe you chose your hobbies. You probably chose your church. But folks, you did not choose your neighbors. God did. And when he says, love your neighbor, he doesn't mean the one you like. He doesn't mean the one that shares your preferences, your values, your interests, or your schedule. When he says love your neighbor, he means the neighbor he chose for you. Remember why God had to choose your storm? Right? Because no training is pleasant at the time, and we would never pick it for ourselves. Well, guess what? Similarly, when God is reconciling people to himself... They are rarely pleasant at the time. Such were some of you. And we would never pick them for ourselves. Bottom line, we don't get to cherry pick who our neighbor is. And we don't get to choose which neighbors God calls us to love. We love the neighbors he gives us. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay, I'm not saying that you need to run out, quit your job, and start a Bible study with every person you meet. Okay, in fact, do, do whatever you can to hold on to the job you have, because that's probably where your neighbor is anyway. What I am saying is, we can start with the people that God has given us for the foreseeable future. Right, think about who God has put into your life that you're, you're probably going to see multiple times a week for the next few months, maybe years. I don't care if you've spoken to them ever. I don't care if you know their name. You, you just start with a face. Can we commit to praying for these people? Right, that doesn't mean you need to commit yourself to putting their kids through college. It just means we need to grow to care about them the way God cares about them. Start by asking a few simple questions. Maybe learn their name. 
and then commit to praying about what they tell you. Actually pay attention to what they say and pray for what they tell you. It's the most loving thing you can do. If you're not sure how to start, if you have nowhere, no way of knowing how to begin, again, shoot me an email. We'll work it out. But you see, the beauty of God giving you neighbors is that door swings both ways. God gave those neighbors you. He didn't just give them your personality, your fun sense of humor, your experiences. He gave them himself through you. You are the best person for your neighbors to know and interact with because you're not going in alone. God in you is exactly what one of those neighbors and probably all of them need. God is reconciling the world to himself and he's using people just like you. Lastly, I know there are probably some folks that are looking at point number three and and concluding that the reason the whole world doesn't worship Jesus is because they personally are not loving their neighbors hard enough. At least that's where my mind tends to go. So my last point is that you don't get to choose who God saves. But we can choose to be a part of the process, their salvation. God does the saving every time, hands down. He is the one who has ordained their days and their neighbors. But he's also ordained that the usual way of saving people is through the witness and testimony of people he's already saved. I get it. It's inconvenient. It's time-consuming. It's costly. But folks, there's a reason that the best seats in the house cost more. The view changes the experience. That's really difficult to explain to somebody who's only ever seen the game from the nosebleeds or watched a highlight on YouTube. All right, but there is a particularly sweet blessing, and some of you know this. There is a sweet blessing that comes from being one of the people who gets to deliver very good news. It's one of the reasons we're so excited about CDT. It's one of the reasons we're so excited to preach truth to people who who need it is because delivering good news is a really fun job. And I'd be lying to you if I told you having a front row seat to watching God bring dead people back to life isn't a very strong incentive for engaging my neighbors. We don't choose who God saves. We don't choose when he saves them. But we can choose to be a part of the process and use our resources, our time, our energy for their behalf and as part of their salvation. At the very least, we can make sure that they know who to cry out to for salvation. As we close, I'm going to leave you with Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the Christians in Rome, saying, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, 
bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how will they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet, those who preach good news. Friends, let's start with the people that he sovereignly put in front of us. He's put us there on purpose, and he didn't leave us alone. But we can't ignore the four and a half billion people who don't have a Christian neighbor yet. We can't ignore or forget about the populations of people who do not have a Christian to encounter. Because God intends to save people from that population too. And we can be a part of that process. In fact, would you join me in praying for our lost neighbors right now? God, we are we're so thankful that you've saved people, people like us. That you've forgiven our sins, then you've empowered us with your Holy Spirit. God, would you bless my friends as they go out? Would you empower them with courage, with discernment, with compassion, as they love the neighbors you've given them? I thank you that you send your sons and daughters into the world to save Would you save our neighbors for your reputation, for your glory? Amen.